Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshtata. This episode is the edited version of a live session from the Jaipur Literature Festival 2021. The spread of Buddhism. Himanshu Prabhare and John Guy in conversation with William Dalrymple. Well, what a pleasure to have uh, with us today two of uh, my great heroes. Uh, Himanshu Prabharai is a national treasure, uh, a pupil of Romila Thapa. She has pioneered a whole uh, uh, world of, uh, of Hindu, early Hindu and Buddhist studies and uh, seafaring and the links between India and Southeast Asia and produced a fantastic shelf of books on them, which I've been gradually working through over the last year. I just uh, completed the last two, I think, of, of, of the collection today, other than her most recent one, which I need to now get. Uh, while uh, John Guy is, is an extraordinary curator whose uh, exhibition, Lost Kingdoms, has uh, set me off on, on a completely different trajectory uh, and has been a, a, a fantastic and uh, uh, catalytic uh, uh, figure uh, promoting um, the appreciation of early Indian sculpture uh, and Indic sculpture in Southeast Asia. Uh, and again, like uh, Himanshu, has a, uh, an incredible bibliography that fills uh, whole pages uh, of, uh, of, uh, with these with his wonderful essays and work. We are short of time uh, to cover an enormous amount of areas, so I'm going to shut up uh, and let Himanshu uh, take over. They've both got 15 minutes to talk about their subjects. Himanshu on the spread of Buddhism within India, then John Guy will take the story off uh, to tell how Buddhism uh, uh, traveled southeastwards to become the dominant religion in Southeast Asia. And then we'll have a little discussion uh, and hand it over. Right, Himanshu, off you go. You have a wonderful presentation for us, I think. Thank you very much. Thank you, William, for those very kind words. I'm delighted to be here and to share um, some of my uh, research uh, that I've been involved in over these years. So what I thought I would do is, uh, while the spread of Buddhism in India is a huge topic, and so what I thought I would do is to focus on stoops, because the stoop, as you know, it uh, symbolizes the Buddha. Uh, it was also built to enshrine the relics of the Buddha. And um, these stoops were discovered in the 19th and 20th century and in a way have helped us reconstruct the journey of Buddhism in the subcontinent. Uh, so we're really concentrating on the stoop and how it was discovered and its story uh, as we move through this first 15 minutes that I have. So the, um, if you look at the date of the Buddha, uh, the date is 624 to 544 BCE. So really the seventh and sixth centuries BCE. And uh, the texts say that after the Buddha's Parinirvana, uh, his relics were uh, redistributed and stoops were built on these relics. But if one looks at the archaeological evidence and if one looks at when the earliest uh, stoops that were built, uh, we do not really have anything prior to the Mauryan King Ashok, which is the 3rd century BCE. 
Uh, King Ashok in his inscriptions does refer to some early stoops, but essentially the surviving stoops are really uh, 2nd century BCE onwards. So uh, the first point is there is a time lag. The tradition certainly talks about uh, distribution of the relics after the Parinirvan of the Buddha. There's also another tradition, which is again a very prominent tradition, which is a 2nd century CE tradition. Uh, of, uh, within the Buddhist textual sources, uh, which uh, again credits Ashok with the redistribution of the relics and the fact that he built 84,000 stoops. So the number, as you can see by the second century CE, has increased enormously. Uh, equally fascinating is the fact that the disciplinary rules for the monks and nuns, the Pali Vinaya, contains no rules which govern the behavior of monks and nuns with regard to the stoop. So clearly we have a whole lot of issues and challenges which we need to uh, discuss and talk about. This is a, a visual from, uh, from Gandhar, first, second century CE relief from Swat in Pakistan. And it shows you the eight um, reliquaries um, uh, uh, which uh, indicate the division of the relics um, into eight uh, by uh, the Brahman just after the Parinirvan of the Buddha. The earliest stoops looked like this. And this is what the early travelers would have seen in the Northwest, because these are the kind of brick structures or brick mounds as they are, which dotted uh, the landscape. So how were they discovered? Um, I, I suggest that especially in the 19th century, they were discovered um, accidentally while some of the early travelers, um, military officials, um, were more familiar with the Greeks, were more familiar with Alexander the Great, and they were essentially looking for, um, for uh, remains of the Greeks, and in the process discovered uh, many of the stoops uh, that we know of today. Others were discovered while laying down railway lines or surveying for roads, there was also an overlap between espionage and antiquarian activities. And this is one of the 1830, one of the earliest uh, uh, stoops now in Pakistan at the site of Manikyala near Islamabad, which was excavated by um, General Ventura, who was uh, one of the French officers of in Maharaja Ranjit Singh's army. He was not looking for a Buddhist stoop, he was looking for the remains of Alexander's horse, but found the stoop. And as you can see in that diagram, what he also found was that the stoops contained enormous treasures, as it were. Gold coins, um, reliquaries, relics um, uh, made out of gold and silver, um, the reliquaries which you see on the top, and um, certainly uh, the relics and bones and ash. And these were placed at regular intervals. So the stoop was not merely a mound of brick, but contained within a whole history of its construction and its survival uh, through the centuries. I'd mentioned that there was an overlap in espionage and antiquarian activities. And in this context, Charles Mason becomes quite important for our purposes. Um, he was uh, a deserter from the uh, East India Company. And he collected a large number of coins, particularly in Afghanistan, in the Kabul Jalalabad area. These were often bilingual coins. So they had Greek on one side and what was then an unidentified script on the other, which you see in the center of the slide, 
but these uh, these were these scripts were then deciphered and read as Karoshti and Brahmi. Another discovery, of course, was when railway lines were uh, were laid out, and particularly um, uh, this enormous copper image of the Buddha, uh, which is more than life size. Uh, dated to the 6th and 7th centuries, was found during construction of the East Indian Railway. Um, the railway engineer, Mr. Harris, he stands um, next to the, uh, to the Buddha image, and you can see the difference, and you can see the, the size of the, the Sultan Ganj Buddha, which was found in Bhagalpur district in Bihar, 1861-62. Uh, uh, this enormous image is now in Birmingham Museum. So the beginning of archaeology, uh, um, so far I've talked about accidental discoveries. The beginning of archaeology really starts with uh, uh, the setting up of the Archaeological Survey of India in 1861. Alexander Cunningham was the first director general, and he was an avid um, follower of, should one say, Buddhism. He wanted to search for sites associated with the life of the Buddha. He had two models to follow. One was the Chinese pilgrim, the seventh century Chinese pilgrim, Xuanzang, who came to India. Uh, his travel account had been translated into English and um, uh, that formed um, one of the ways in which um, uh, Alexander Cunningham looked for sites associated with the life of the Buddha. The other, of course, were the Sri Lankan chronicles, the Mahavansa, which again was very late, uh, much after the life of the Buddha, fourth, fifth century CE. But that's another, uh, another text that Cunningham relied on to identify and to work out the life um, of, the, uh, of the Buddha and the sites associated with the historical Buddha. The archaeological survey also had another dimension, conservation. And um, um, we, we saw the brick mounds earlier on, which was what remained of these stoops. Um, in the 19th century. But in the 20th century, these were then conserved. Um, and at the bottom of the uh, slide, you can see the nicely uh, conserved um, uh, stoops at Sanchi in Madhya Pradesh. Um, what is also extraordinary are the English gardens around them, uh, the, the green lawns. And um, they, Sanchi, of course, is a World Heritage Site. But something which I would like you to consider is the fact that this conservation um, also missed out an important clue uh, of the stoops, which uh, informed us not just about what was inside them and what related um, to the life history of the stoop, but also the way in which it was perceived and revered by worshippers. And by this, I mean uh, the sphere of sacrality around the stoop. This is, um, uh, this is from the excavations of John Marshall, early 20th century excavations at Takshila in Pakistan. Uh, as you will notice on this, there is a main stoop in the center, but there are smaller stoops, a ring of smaller stoops all around. Uh, these were built much after the main stoop. But the point I'm making is that the area con continued to be sacred and continued uh, to be in worship um, uh, for a very long time. And these smaller um, uh, votive stoops or uh, smaller stoops um, contained the relics of either important monks and nuns, important people, 
And so there was this whole area around the stoop, which kind of got uh, wiped out uh, after conservation, as we saw in the Sanchi, where the lawns are laid and we do not have this, uh, this sort of complex alive uh, uh, as it is here. This is a site which is much later. This was done by the Archaeological Survey of India, uh, the site of Ratnagiri. It was excavated by, um, a, by a lady archaeologist, Devala Mitra, and her reports are really uh, interesting and fascinating. But the point I want to make here is that you can see the smaller stoops still preserved and still conserved at the site. So um, coming to uh, how then do we see the agency for the spread of Buddhism? We've looked through the stoops, we've seen the kind of challenges they present, also the kind of richness and wealth that uh, was uh, incorporated within them. Um, I'd also mentioned that many of them were associated with Ashok and uh, his emissaries, and certainly in Buddhist history and Buddhist texts, Ashok, King Ashok, the Mauryan King Ashok, 3rd century BCE, figures very prominently um, in the, um, uh, for the spread of Buddhism. Another agency is also the merchants, um, and we have several uh, visualizations of merchants um, uh, either gifting uh, the uh, property to the, to the Buddhist Sangha or also setting up stoops. Um, Bhallika Tapusa and Bhallika set up stoops in Orissa um, after they took hair from the Buddha, and these relics were then enshrined in these. But this, uh, this, uh, this data, this evidence kind of um, doesn't quite match what you get from inscriptions. The inscriptions refer to monks and nuns um, as being uh, really the major agency for the spread of Buddhism and not so much uh, the others. And clearly the monks and nuns figure very importantly in the inscriptions. And of course the historians, um, uh, when they look uh, or when they study the spread of Buddhism, they look at urban centers and the way in which urban centers um, led to the spread of Buddhism. But one thing is very clear, which is that at many of the sites, Sanchi, we just saw, this is, uh, this is from Sarnath, uh, a visual of an early excavation, early 20th century excavation, 1905, 1905 excavation uh, at Sarnath near Varanasi. You see the Ashokan pillar in the foreground the lion capital just behind. Um, and um, it is very evident um, from sites like Sarnath, Sanchi and others that monastic centers expanded uh, enormously um, uh, near, and especially when these monastic centers were located close to the Ashokan pillars. And this is a good example of both the pillar um, and the lion capital, which were recovered during excavations in the early 20th century. And as you know, the lion capital and the Ashokan chakra are both uh, symbols which are very important in the history of India, uh, particularly the history of independent India. But before I go to that, just one more point I would like to make, which is that the Ashokan pillars had a life of their own long after uh, the Mauryan king Ashok, uh, many other kings inscribed their inscriptions on these pillars, and these pillars were also transferred to other places, the Delhi uh, Firosha Kotla pillar being a good example of this. But let me end by um, just highlighting 
the the enormous significance and in, importance of Ashoka, not just for the spread of Buddhism, but also with regard to our national emblem and the national symbols. Uh, you see the the chakra on the Indian flag and uh, the uh, the lion capital as um, the national symbol. So with that, I end and thank you for your attention. Thank you. Manchu, thank you so much. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to go straight on to John and then uh, return to return to you during the question time. John, do you want to take the story on? So okay. Buddhism starts in, in Bihar, it spreads throughout India. Uh, <clears throat> what happens next? Thank you, William, and thank, thank you, Professor Ray. That was a wonderful uh, overview. Uh, my, my brief is to speak on the spread of Buddhism to Southeast Asia, um, and um, this raises many, many interesting questions and keeps us firmly uh, in the first millennium AD. So how and when did Buddhism first spread from the Indian subcontinent to Southeast Asia? Uh, it would appear in my reading to be a relatively swift process and linked primarily to the prior expansion of Buddhism into the Deccan and into Southern India. Uh, this took place incrementally uh, as Buddhism as a relatively new and actively evangelizing faith movement spread, causing new stupas to be built, or as the Buddha himself instructed, uh, stupas to be built, quote, where none existed before. So we're very much pushing to new frontiers, and this seems to be the movement from the Gangetic Valley regions of northern India uh, down into the Deccan and beyond it to southern India. Uh, the transmission to Sri Lanka represents a different trajectory and an, an early story which links right back to the time of Emperor Ashoka. The institution of monastic Buddhism can be traced again back to the lifetime of the Buddha and his assembly of monks at Jatavana Parkland and Travasti in UP and proved to be an effective tool uh, for the propagation of Buddhism. The intersection of uh, trade routes um, and uh, location of uh, monasteries uh, is, is a very clear one um, and um, ties us right back into the patronage patterns that supported the spread and, and expansion of Buddhism. So not only the wealth of the merchant communities who funded the monasteries but also the medium of trade um, which facilitated uh, the dispersal of, uh, of, of Buddhist teachings, the safe passage of monks and so on uh, throughout India initially and then indeed beyond Southeast Asia. The spread of Buddhism to Southeast Asia seems to be linked uh, to the booming maritime trade along the littorals of the Bay of Bengal, linking Bengal, Arissa, ancient Andhra, Andhradesa, uh, to peninsula <clears throat> and island Southeast Asia in a dynamic trading system that featured goods, people, religious ideas and their agents, and presumably religious imagery, uh, reflecting various regional styles. For this very early period, we have uh, I won't say li very, very little archaeological evidence, uh, but it is growing, uh, particularly excavations in the Bay Peninsula producing artifacts from the early centuries BC that bear witness to this exchange system was taking place, pushing back in time our understanding of the interactions across the Bay of Bengal. Despite being overtly Indic in subject matter and iconography, <laughs> the art of Southeast Asia, particularly the Buddhist art of Southeast Asia, is so unmistakably un-Indian uh, that no work of art that I will show today would be mistaken for being a product of a sculptor's workshop in the subcontinent of India and in subcontinental India. How and why these great sculptural traditions emerged so quickly in Southeast Asia 
and with a distinctly local character, flavor, physiognomy, and above all style, remains an open question. The early Buddhist and Hindu art of early Southeast Asia <clears throat> was associated with a series of regional kingdoms whose histories are rather sketchy and incomplete at best. Uh, in brief, these are the Pu in Myanmar, uh, the Mon in central Thailand, the Khmer's of Thunan and uh, Chen La, equivalent to modern day Cambodia, the Chums of coastal Vietnam, um, at the great maritime polity of Srivijaya, um, which extended its tendrils up the Thai Peninsula and to Western Indonesia, um, and um, also uh, probably from uh, Sumatra to uh, Palembang. Uh, the uh, early evidence we have is essentially non-literary or its contact, um, and we see it in terms of the residual artifacts that survive from Indian merchant activity in Southeast Asia. So the upper left on the screen is merchant uh, seal with the sailing ship, uh, uh, clearly produced from an Indian mold, probably Bengali, um, and recovered in central Thailand. Below that, a, a Roman coin, um, and we, many of you will be familiar with uh, the remarkable fact that the largest hordes of Roman uh, coinage recovered outside Northern Europe uh, have been recovered in India, particularly in Southern India. And here we have a Roman coin, almost certainly came via India um, and was excavated uh, in uh, uh, Utong in central Thailand, um, but minted in uh, Roman Germany in the third century. And finally, that uh, the line drawing of an ivory comb, um, almost certainly under Pradesh uh, production, again from a site uh, near Lakuri in central Thailand. So all of these, and there are many other examples, bear witness uh, to this uh, exchange system was taking place. The earliest inscriptions that we have, when we start to uh, look at the epigraphic evidence, however, give a slightly different picture. Uh, the first names that appear of local rulers, uh, which are already Sanskritized names, um, are those of Mulavarman uh, and Kulavarman. Uh, Mulavarman, you see in the stele on the right, uh, on the screen is one of seven uh, stones which are self-identified in the inscription as Yupa stones, that is their sacrificial posts. Uh, and a, I think Yupas have a long tradition, in, of course, in, in Vedic ritual. Uh, these seven stones uh, were recovered on the east coast of Kalimantan at Borneo in Old Money. Uh, remarkable because uh, this is a, an isolated backwater place today, uh, but clearly in the fourth or fifth century AD, um, it was connected very actively to an Indic culture that was moving around the region, including people who had command of Sanskrit um, and the associated Brahmanical culture. So very, very uh, revealing um, in terms of the impact and the penetration of Indic culture in the region by this early period. Uh, on the left of the same screen is the slightly later rock-cut inscription of Pulavarman from the king of a well-known ruler of the kingdom of West Java. Um, this dates probably to around the sixth century um, and which he identifies himself closely with uh, Vishnu um, and particularly the uh, Grama Vishnu, the three strides that en encircle the world. Um, and uh, the inscription uh, speaks of, uh, of uh, self-eulogizing of Pulavarman um, as a great king whose footprints are the same as those of Vishnu. Um, and then you have this wonderful cursive in, um, 
markings, what often called shell, gel script um, above the footprints, um, which almost certainly tell us money. And it's, where is it located? It's located in a, a river, um, uh, which uh, beified and, and uh, branched around forming an actual island, which is thought to be in the citadel of, of this ruler. So uh, the presence of the inscription in the river uh, which, where it would be illustrated by the seasonal flooding points to uh, the power, the magical power of these markings. Um, we have more tangible evidence. Why were the Indians there so early? One of the major factors uh, is the uh, well-known insatiable appetite that uh, subcontinental India has for gold and its uh, important place uh, in um, the store, as a store of wealth and particularly of um, matrimony. Um, matriarchal wealth and passing of wealth through, through the female line. So the gathering of gold in Southeast Asia seems to have been a major factor. And upper left, we have this, what is the earliest uh, Tamil Brahmi inscription recovered uh, from Southeast Asia, probably second to third century AD, um, identifying it as the touchstone of a goldsmith, Haramal, um, found on the Thai Peninsula near Krabi. Uh, quite some years ago, very, very important witness to this process of not only sourcing gold in Southeast Asia, but actively processing it also in the region. And below a fragment of uh, uh, Indic pottery or, uh, with Tamil, in, again, Tamil Brahmi, traces of Tamil Brahmi inscription, again recovered from the Thai Peninsula. Uh, why were these ideas accepted so, so readily? I think one of the reasons is, is that uh, so much shared imagery that was in, already in place in Southeast Asian cultures, uh, the importance of water, uh, the importance of snakes, um, and um, the fact that we're in a, a, a tropical zone. Um, and so on the left, I show you this very famous seventh century, uh, what's called a curse uh, inscription. It's a, a, a oath of loyalty to a local ruler uh, inscribed on this steely which was clearly intended uh, to be lustrated. You'd see the little spout at the bottom for the lustration waters to be collected and protected by the Kordavanaga uh, above. That translates very quickly and seamlessly into uh, images of a familiar subject, uh, the Naga protected Buddha, which in many Indian, specific Indian contexts we call the Buddha Mukalinda. Uh, whether that name was applied in Southeast Asia is less clear to us. So you can see the way that these ideas marry very comfortably uh, into a Southeast Asian setting. Uh, but also there was the very real agency of objects traveling, of images. On the left is what we think is the earliest stone Buddha uh, ever found in mainland Southeast Asia from Peninsula, Thailand, now in the National Museum in Bangkok. Um, and on the right, um, one of a series of spectacular, much later, probably second half of the first millennium, uh, one meter high bronze Buddhas. These are large gold figures. Example on the screen uh, from Sulawesi found uh, a century ago. Um, another is here, the so-called Dong Duong uh, Buddha uh, from central Vietnam, um, excavated within the context of a Mahayana, 9th century Mahayana monastery uh, near Da Nang, uh, but almost certainly, and the, the general consensus now, but all of us who think about these questions uh, is that it's uh, originated in Sri Lanka. So clearly witnessing, these are what we call the missionary bronzes, missionary Buddhas, which traveled um, and high investment, 
I mean, these were expensive objects in their day um, and um, would have not been just peddled by uh, itinerant traders on the off chance you'd find a keen Buddhist to buy it. Uh, these must have been commissioned. Um, so you get a sense of the whole uh, process of uh, an interaction, long distance trade, uh, which included religious imagery. All portable images, they can travel easily. Monks can take them along with the texts um, in their possessions. And we have Vassien um, uh, and other Chinese Buddhist pilgrims who make reference to carrying images with them. They probably carried light portable sandalwood, ivory, uh, this, uh, these materials that are perishable and lost to us, uh, but also metal objects. Uh, both of these images are, I would argue, Sri Lankan in origin. Uh, on the left was found uh, in um, central Thailand, on the right in central Java. Stupas themselves, um, with very, with the notable exception of uh, Sanchi and Sarnath, which have been conserved in India, um, we don't really know the true profiles of the originals. Um, we have some of the most complete surviving early stupas uh, survive outside India. Uh, and I show you on the screen two uh, remarkable examples. On the left, uh, a restored stupa at Nakonsi Tamarat, um, which uh, is a, a Dwaravati foundation extremely early, somewhere in the mid-first millennium, um, and was restored by Rama, Rama V at the end of the 19th century. Um, to its present state as it is now. And on the right, uh, the, the Dodoji stupa at Sisestra uh, in central uh, Burma, um, one of, uh, which marked one of the four access gates to the ancient city. Um, these are spectacular. And the profiles are very distinctive and rather conical and tall um, and resemble, they're witnessed in terracottas from the same place and time. And they're also mirrored in many of the relief depictions we get from Nagarjunaconda and elsewhere that give us a clue to what uh, the Andhra uh, Buddha stupa types, of which we have very little surviving. Um, Shandavaram, I think was on, uh, Professor Ray showed earlier as one example, but there are very few um, surviving in, in, in much beyond their foundations. Um, well, stupas have a purpose. They're, they're there to house relics um, and to honor uh, the teachings of the Buddha and to the corporeal remains of the Buddha. Um, and here we have uh, what is arguably the single most important uh, stupa find, or one of the greatest stupa finds, perhaps the most spectacular um, of a scale. We see witnessed in relief depictions in India, recall the uh, parading of relics on elephants on the Bhagavad reliefs and so on. We see these large containers being carried by uh, noble uh, donors um, and being honored for deposit. Um, here we have an excavation in 1926 in Sisestra uh, in the um, uh, uh, excavation of a sorry, excavation of a stupa. Um, uh, the brick chamber, which you see below, the stone slab, which was associated with the chamber. We don't know its precise relationship, whether it was a cover or lining was not clear. But at the heart of the relic chamber was this large um, reliquary. It's over 14 inches uh, in diameter, uh, gilt silver, with the four past Buddhas, including of the present age, uh, with three past Buddhas and the present Buddha around it, uh, Pali and Pew inscriptions, uh, including Sanskritized names of a, a royal donor couple, male and female, uh, spectacular. Um, and um, 
So there's a whole group of uh, uh, quite extraordinary uh, relic objects that uh, came from this uh, one hoard. Uh, there's evidence of redeposit, which was quite common. Um, and so various items date from, from different periods. The other great site which moves us into later periods uh, is, is Kedar in the Malay Peninsula. Uh, the uh, Bujang Valley uh, is very important um, and as a major trading entrepot, this was the Kalar of the Arabic navigators uh, from the later first millennium. Uh, we have two important Buddhist uh, remains, these two stele, which both uh, show stupas and carry Pali uh, 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 Yedama verses on them. Uh, essentially, they're Thanksgiving memorials to safe passage. Um, one is, uh, identifies the mariner as uh, Buddha Gupta, uh, coming from the land of the Red Earth, which most uh, the consensus is now that uh, suggests that he was operating from Bengal or Bengali origin. Um, so these witness the trading system in probably around the 5th and 6th centuries, ditto the small uh, Buddha in the Gupta manner, um, which is uh, also recovered from the same, same site. Um, Professor Ray uh, mentioned, of course, the role of uh, the agents of uh, agency of monks in the transmission of Buddhism. Very important. From we have the extraordinary body of literature from the early fifth century with Fasian through to the eighth century. A whole cluster of remarkable uh, first-hand accounts. Indeed, the only eyewitness accounts we have to Buddhism in the region. Um, so, and witnessed also by uh, portable. Uh, multiple uh, clay mouldings uh, which, which uh, allowed for the propagation of Buddhism. And we know the moulds circulated uh, to produce these, these easy things to trans transport and then multiple images to be made as acts of uh, merit earning activity. Uh, the images themselves uh, become really very spectacular. And I show you just three uh, images of, of the Buddhas, each in a distinctive style. This is uh, uh, Chen Lar, uh, early Cambodia, fifth uh, to century, sixth and seventh century Thailand, uh, some of the greatest Buddha types uh, that we have surviving today. And none of these could be at any point be mistaken for Indian production. They're clearly talking in a local voice uh, already, um, although the attributes, the, all the outward signs are Indian and Buddhist. Um, the language, the stylistic language being used is not. Um, we come to the great uh, symbol of Buddhism, of course, is the, the wheel symbolizing the uh, teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Dharma Chakra mounted on a pillar, the Stamba, a great symbol uh, associated with kingship um, and the Buddha's teaching. And here, of course, it was celebrated. The only place outside India where this form found expression for reasons we don't know uh, why it's so limited, appears only in the Mon culture of Gauravati Kingdom in uh, central Thailand, as an example here. And of course, it's modeled on the great uh, types we know from the hundred territories. Uh, this is an Amaravati pillar in the British Museum, where you see the full assembly of that pillar and wheel and the great surviving wheel at Amaravati Museum, one meter in diameter. Um, so this is the prototype. The Indian ones almost invariably uh, pierced, the spokes of the wheel, uh, open work, uh, the Southeast Asian ones are solid. This is your uh, way in which the wheel is associated 
with the Chakravarti, this is one of the great early um, Andhra uh, images of uh, the king as divine ruler, uh, Chakravarti, universal sovereign, and one of his seven jewels, his seven symbols of, of divine authority is the wheel of the Buddha's teachings, uh, represented in its relief, and then we see it replicated in a small portable motifs um, on the right from Thailand. Great Buddha images, the beginnings of serial imagery of Buddhas, the excavations in the lower right of the, uh, one of the stupa uh, sites at Nakhon Paton, um, and one of the Buddhas from that site uh, we have on the screen is uh, sublimely beautiful, produced in uh, replication um, and, uh, and uh, serial Buddha images, just as we see in modern Thai monasteries today. Uh, on occasions, um, on rare occasions, new image types emerge, which have a very specific historical moment and, and the agency of a known individual. And I, I argue with it, the image of the uh, Bodhisattva Amagopacha, you see on the screen here, and many of you will recognize on the left, the great uh, stone piece uh, that was excavated at, at Sarnath in the 1970s, oh sorry, at Nalanda in the 1970s, um, 8th century. Um, and the, 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 what is less familiar is the bronze in the center of the screen, uh, which uh, was excavated from a, a site that's now completely lost lost to us uh, in the Malay Peninsula, um, but which uh, almost certainly uh, represented a major monastery somewhere in Malaya um, in the um, uh, eighth century. Of course, this, John, uh, I'm going to have to break in there. We've gone a little bit over time. Distant glove into what we know about the movement of one of the great teachers, uh, Vajrabodhi, um, uh, who was summoned to, 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 to China in 1720 uh, to teach and propagate uh, 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 his teachings, the Buddha's teachings, uh, but, but, but uh, sojourned in Southeast Asia for we think around two years, uh, teaching at Sri Vijaya. Um, and uh, it may well be that he was also based in, in Kedar or somewhere close by in the Malay Peninsula, and that this image, this major cult image, uh, is a legacy of his teachings at that time and its propagation of the Amagapacha uh, uh, cult. John, I'm going to have to break in, I'm afraid, there. Uh, We're running out of time. Uh, actually, uh, this Mon um, uh, terracotta, over life-size, quite spectacular, um, and a jungle just for fun, uh, to show the lineage of the, the crown types. And just to conclude, uh, two images which address the issue of rivalry uh, and competition between the Buddhists and uh, the Brahmanical teachers. And this is a spectacular one meter high uh, depiction of the miracles of Shravasti um, uh, of a, a scale and importance that uh, conflates two of the particular legends. I have no time to go into the detail, uh, but uh, into this large narrative scene, which uh, honors the, the Buddha prevailing over um, a uh, heretic of a Brahmanical teacher seen lower right. Uh, falling back in, in horror at the power of the Buddha's uh, uh, teachings. And finally, uh, a scene which is unheard of in India um, and unique uh, indeed to Thailand is this rock-cut uh, cave interior uh, relief which shows the Buddha prevailing over Shiva and Vishnu. Here he is enthroned, teaching and attending him 
Uh, one uh, is the seated figure of Shiva and standing next to him, his arms folded across his chest. Um, uh, in deference as Vishnu. Uh, so clearly propaganda art in which the Buddhists were um, promoting a very clear message about their relationship to the rival uh, Indic religions that were circulating at this time. Thank you. John, thank you very much. That's fantastic. Um, between the two, you've painted a spectacular panorama. Um, I'd like to hope hone in particularly on the role of merchant, which is something that uh, Imantru has written a great deal about and, and very important in your story, John. Um, how much in early India was Buddhism, uh, the in India, first of all, uh, and then we'll go next to the Southeast Asian situation. How much in India was, was Buddhism uh, propagated by and patronized by the merchant classes? Imantru first. Yeah, uh, no, certainly if you look at the inscriptions, and, uh, you know, the donations that are made at many of the uh, Buddhist monastic sites, they come uh, from merchants, uh, you know, and, and I, can, I can name Kanheri, for example, where money is given, land is donated by merchants, and also uh, many others, Bharat, Sanchi, Mathura, uh, Amravati. So uh, the, the, uh, the patronage, uh, for many of these large Buddhist sites in India was certainly coming from, uh, from merchants and uh, trading groups, and also many of the artisanal and occupational groups, you know, goldsmiths and so on. Ivory so workers. That's very, yeah, that's very clear from the inscriptions. John, um, you, you showed those two images of the, of the Vedic sacrificial posts and, and the thing. Both of them were, were Hindu and associated with kings. Again, do you get the impression that that Hinduism in Southeast Asia is very much the business of the state and the building up of kingdoms, while Buddhism is, is passed on by merchants and by missionary monks, or is that not a, 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 a distinction you can make? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting uh, point you raise, uh, William, because uh, it's, it's certainly clear and that the very beginnings of uh, Indic culture witnessed by the first inscriptions that uh, Vaishnavism um, was terribly important in helping to shape um, a local concept of kingship. Um, and um, so th th that uh, those early centuries of the mid-first millennium, um, uh, this is uh, critical. What we see emerging in the later first millennium is the uh, uh, an assertion of Shaivism over that. Um, and um, it's clear that uh, they were uh, hedging their beds um, we have um, in the Dongduang Monastery where we saw that great Sri Lankan Buddha from Trumper in central Vietnam, where that was recovered. Uh, that is a Mahayana monastery founded in the mid-9th century by a local king in Dravaman, uh, the second, I think. And he uh, states in that inscription that this great monastery in honor of the Buddha uh, was, was created under the, with the permission of Shiva, essentially, under an umbrella um, of uh, uh, power authority. Uh, so that's what I've, I've called uh, Shiva's land um, in some writings. It's, it's, it's a, a vision which the whole uh, uh, landscape, prodigious landscape, uh, Shiva prevails, but within that uh, other systems operate. And we see this curious juxtaposition preserved today in modern Southeast Asia, uh, in which uh, Brahmanical rituals are still important, Abhishek's uh, and so on in royal consecration ceremonies and so on in Thailand, Cambodia and so on. 
um, uh, but the king is uh, uh, the, the uh, official protector of Buddhism. Uh, yeah, so both these things somehow coexist. Um, one, and you see an array of Brahmanical deities worshipped in Thailand today, of course, uh, within what's uh, a, a strong Buddhist context. Um, one last question before we run out of time. Today we have a very clear image of India with its modern political boundaries. We think of Burma and Southeast Asia as somewhere different and, and quite separate, even a different region. But you've painted a picture of, 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 a, kind of a single cultural world spanning the Bay of Bengal. Do you think that India had a very clear entity which ended at sort of the end of Bengal or, or did it spill culturally uh, both in, in pre-Buddhist and, and in Buddhist times and, uh, and with the spread of Hinduism? Right over, right over eastwards. Hey, Manshu, do you want to start first? Yeah, sure. Um, no, I certainly argue that um, uh, it was, um, you know, it was much larger. And um, no, also, I think what 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 one needs to uh, to understand is um, uh, that map making or cartography, the way we see it now, you know, the nation state. Uh, that's really a much later development. And um, if one is looking at, um, at the past in which these divisions did not exist, I think it's somewhat um, erroneous to argue still for those divisions, you know, in an, in a, in a, at a time uh, when these were non-existent. Uh, so certainly what one needs to look at are much more roots, much more, um, you know, uh, coastal networks, much more shrines, and their connections, their connectivity. So I'm arguing for connectivity across the ocean, rather than looking um, at um, you know at national identity uh, boundaries. You get a very clear picture of Naga cults and water deities and yakshis pre-existing not only in uh, so predating Buddhism not only in India but also in Southeast Asia. Is there is there some reason to believe that there is this sort of cultural commonality? out of which a common soil, out of which Buddhism and Hinduism grows, not only in India, but also in Southeast Asia. <coughs> Absolutely. No, the, uh, I alluded to the, uh, the importance of uh, the, the Nagas, for example, um, having very powerful uh, cults in Southeast Asia, um, and that's pre-Buddhist, um, and um, nature worship in various forms, various forms of um, what in India we call yaksha, uh, uh, yaksha cults and so on, um, are certainly uh, prevalent and have an afterlife in early India, pre-Indic pre Southeast Asia, um, and have an afterlife. We look at the Nats in, in Burma, for example, um, the equivalent, the same things exist in uh, nature cults in uh, uh, Cambodia today, um, and so on. So uh, there's an incredible continuity and many shared values. Um, I think to address your earlier point uh, about the uh, extent to which the whole region was uh, continuum, I think uh, this is very true, um, and certainly the, the, the uh, Bay of Bengal was a key um, uh, circulation region uh, linking up all of these, these centres, but the peoples themselves uh, were already in a sense distinct, and that's defined ethnically and defined uh, linguistically. Um, and so you have the Pew, you have the Mon, um, and, and the, the, the Cham, and the Khmer speakers, and so on, the late, later arrival of the Thai-speaking peoples, and uh, the Malay, early Malay language, and so on. All of these um, were already distinct entities, um, and to, to some degree, um, those regional identities 
uh, do uh, morph into later uh, later states. Uh, so you get a, a, a hint of what's there already um, through by, by looking at these. Were they all interconnected? Yes, absolutely. Um, did they they, they were informed by by dynamics um, of exchange. We, we, we've sadly run out of time. I think we could all talk for a whole day on this, but thank you yes. so much. And, and you're, thank you. Fantastic, fantastic. Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please subscribe or follow to this show wherever you're listening to this.